You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Mean O'Line Media presents Black Arm of the Law. So welcome to Black Armor the Law podcast, where each week we will examine the most pressing issues in the criminal legal system. I'm your host, Dr. Rochelle Brackney, also known as Chief B. As we settle into today's show, don't forget to download, subscribe, follow, rate, and comment on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. So let's jump into it. My guest for today has more titles than I can even imagine, and we keep crossing paths. I have, I'm going to claim it, the soon-to-be Dr. Hansel Aguilar, as he's currently working as a doctoral student um, at George Mason University. Um, he is currently now the, the director in the city of Berkeley for their police accountability. He was the former director, like inaugural, in both places, you all hear this, in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, long before they passed ordinances that were mandating that they have police oversight. And that was in response to the Unite the Right organization. Police oversight in Washington, D.C. He is a former police officer as well. He is one of the persons who sits with me on the police advisory board at George Mason University. Um, I don't even know how many, talk about how many boards you sit on. You actually even do work with NACOL, you know, which is the National Association of Civilian Oversight for law enforcement personnel folks. This is Hansel Aguilar and welcome to the show. I'm from Berkeley, California, three hours behind us. Thank you, Dr. B. Appreciate it. So, so talk to me. Um, first of all, you're in Berkeley. Like Berkeley, California is a huge shift from Northern Virginia where you were, DC, um, and from Central Virginia, but it is definitely a shift from where you're from, which is Honduras. So talk to me about that. How do you find yourself in Berkeley? Sure. And, and first of all, I do want to thank you for having me here. I've been a fan of the podcast when you started it, and I've been trying to keep up with the episodes, so I appreciate the, the discussions you're having. Uh, to me, it's it's very humbling experience uh, being uh, from Puerto Cortez, Honduras, um, just, just thinking about, I, I often find myself asking myself that question, how, how did I get here? Uh, but it, it's been a, a quite an interesting journey for sure. I don't, I never, as a kid, envisioned, oh, I want to be a civilian oversight professional. I don't even, I didn't even know what that was. But um, I started um, just getting an interest in law and generally speaking. My father was an attorney in, in Honduras and uh, he, he didn't practice criminal justice um, uh, law or um, criminal defense, although he did actually early on, and he he, he shared a anecdote uh, with me that uh, th- why he stopped doing that. He actually got threatened by one of his clients, uh, and he said, "Yep, I'm not doing that anymore." But um, he he always had a passion for the law, though, and, he, and that's something that's the upbringing that that we had. He served as a, a congressman in in Honduras, uh, so he was passionate about public service. Also, my mother, she's very uh, 
passionate about helping others as well. She served as a social worker. So that's the kind of upbringing I had. Um, I studied criminal justice at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Um, and, you know, it, it was very eye-opening for me to, and also sociology, just to uh, understand my experiences growing up as a migrant in the U.S. and, and in an urban city, uh, seeing the city get gentrified. Uh, I remember when uh, they knocked down the projects in, in, in New Brunswick, a lot, a lot of my friends obviously got displaced in that. And I just didn't understand what was going on, you know, at a young age then, but learning about these kind of processes uh, uh, through sociology and criminal justice really opened up my worldview. Uh, I then had the opportunity to go on to graduate school at George Mason, uh, where I studied um, I, my master's. I completed in sociology, and I'm currently um, um, finalizing my dissertation. Uh, and in there, I also had the opportunity, as you mentioned, to serve as a police officer, uh, which it wasn't, it wasn't something that I um, was uh, f- from the beginning really interested in, like I want to be an officer, but it was, uh, to be put, be frank, uh, it was helping me pay the tuition at George Mason. So, uh, but it also had the skill set, you know, I was a re- relatively in good shape and I had an interest in criminal justice. So I said, let's do it. Uh, and it was helpful too, because I, when I came out of the academy, um, um, Mike Brown, uh, uh, it, it just happened, um, and that uh, was very interesting for me to, you know, to join the force at that time. I remember uh, one of my first days on patrol, a uh, community member came up to me, and they had their hands up, and they said, don't shoot. And I'm like, I just got here, like, and, you know, this is how the community is, is receiving me, and so it was interesting for me, for sure. Uh, but then I had the opportunity to venture out into civilian oversight uh, world, and that's where I've been in the last few years. So, so thank you for that. So I'm gonna pick up on that first because, you know, the concept of police civilian oversight is not new in the United States, and we'll talk about when it really started to ramp up. I remember as early as 1997, 1998. Um, in the city of Pittsburgh, where I was from, it was voted in as a referendum um, that there was some police oversight needed, particularly as the Department of Justice had come in. And Pittsburgh was the first major city under the Uniform Crime Bill of 1994 that most people know as the three strikes are out, that provision that said that the Department of Justice had the ability to come in and investigate departments for patterns and practices of abuse. And they had found that Pittsburgh had these patterns and practices of stopping and searching, particularly um, African-American young men without probable cause and then searching them. And this was their pattern um, more than anything. So stopping them and seizing and searching them. And as a result of that, in tandem with the consent decree that they voluntarily went into, there was a referendum put on the ballots and the, the city overwhelmingly voted in 1998, I believe it was, for a police civilian review board um, with a director's fully funded by the city, but as an independent entity. So I'm really familiar with, you know, back then, this is almost 40 years ago or, or 30 years ago, we really, there were police oversight um, entities that existed but not to the degree and the necessity to which the communities are saying now. Would you agree with that? And have you, and how have you seen that 
um, explosion occur from the time you first started thinking about these issues through 2024? Because Michael Brown was 2014, more than 10 years ago. Correct. And I do uh, uh, also just emphasize your point that it's not new, but uh, we've certainly seen an explosion. And recently in here at Berkeley, I had the opportunity to... um, our office, uh, the Office of Director of Police Accountability, we had the opportunity to host the 50th anniversary of civilian oversight. So we were uh, believed to were believed to be the first civilian oversight agency with investigative authority uh, in the country, if not one of the first. And um, but a, a, as you mentioned, that was sort of kind of in isolation. It wasn't like it was widespread. Uh, but there has been, and I've seen certainly in my time. Uh, in this field, seeing the enthusiasm for civilian oversight, I often uh, get um, to communicate with members from across the nation who are interested. Hey, we're interested in launching a board, and uh, we we went on Google, we found your website, we want to know about your experience. So we're often fielding those questions, uh, and even when I was in Charlottesville, we also got those inquiries. But uh, I've definitely seen a lot of it at NACO, uh, the National Association of Civilian Oversight Law Enforcement, has continuously been reporting that they're, they're also fielding a lot of questions. Uh, this past year, uh, the NACO conference 2023 was the first year that they sold out, which it, it's never happened in, in their, their short history. Uh, and now they have enough funding where they hired their first executive director. So there's definitely a lot of excitement for this field now. So talk to our listening audience who may not understand what is civilian oversight, which there's typically like three models out there for civilian oversight. I'm sure there's somebody's going to get creative and come up with some other ones, but there are three main models that we currently work with now about civilian oversight. And let's talk about the individual models, and then we're going to come back and talk about the pros and cons of each of the models um, and then you know, let's go there first. Let's talk about the three different types of potential oversight that currently exists in the United States. Sure. So, and this isn't necessarily a hierarchy, but uh, I would always start with the, the review model. So that model is where uh, community members, uh, an appointed board, a commission or a panel, um, they're usually appointed by the elected officials. Uh, they're tasked with reviewing cases that go to internal affairs. And usually the the panel commission, they're tasked with making sure that internal affairs investigation was thorough, complete, and accurate, uh, impartial. Uh, they, they and de- depending on the varying degrees and the, the legal system and the constraints, they might get full access to the investigative file to include body-worn camera, the audio transcripts of the interviews, uh, unredacted reports. In in some areas, they might get a redacted version of it. But the essence of that model is to make sure that the police did a a thorough job in investigating any allegations brought forth. Uh, There's pros and cons out of that model, and at any model, we could discuss that a little bit more. But uh, the other model is the investigative model, as I mentioned, Berkeley. Um, was one of the the first investigative models. That is where uh, civilian oversight agency, oversight board, or commission uh, is empowered to do independent investigations uh, against um, 
uh, or, or allegation uh, regarding allegations brought against police departments or officers. So they will be doing this, exact, the um, similar work that Internal Affairs is doing. Now, these will be administrative investigations. They don't have um, uh, the authority to make arrests or not making uh, any criminal prosecutions. They may refer to the local DA and also to the investigative division of a, of a police department if there's any criminal misconduct. But for the most part, they're tasked with the administrative function. And then there's also the monitor or the auditor model. And that is where the uh, civilian oversight agency, they're actively looking at practices, policies, patterns of the police department to monitor any um, anomalies, any um, areas where the police department can improve and should improve. Uh, They're looking at data. The auditor is doing systematic reviews of potential uh, internal affairs investigations. Uh, there in some uh, areas, like in Fairfax, the uh, independent auditor may be uh, able to do real-time uh, monitoring of the um, of an officer-involved shooting. They might get access to the scene uh, and be able to walk along uh, the criminal investigators and the internal affairs investigators to monitor that in real time. And there, there might be jurisdictions that have a combination of each of these. So technically... Um, Berkeley could be considered a hybrid model because it has the investigative authority and it also has the review function if somebody's dissatisfied with internal affairs investigation. Right. And that dissatisfaction means that they can have another body, uh, they can appeal to the other body, kind of like in Charlottesville, once the investigation was completed and once the final decisions, if they still were unhappy with that, they could appeal to the board for a review, um, as well, and they could conduct hearings, actual hearings and things of that nature, correct? Correct. So if I'm a community um, looking towards a model and I have to weigh all these factors and, and people don't understand cost is a factor. So excluding cost, these things are expensive and typically uh, these models are expensive and someone would often say redundant because the police have internal affairs, right? So that means there has to be some trust in the system of policing as well as its ability to investigate itself, which we now know does not exist. Very few um, communities fully trust their internal affairs organizations. What would be the pros and cons of each of the models as you see it? And as a board is starting to, or a community is starting to think about it, what are some of the factors they need to consider to determine the type of board and how they would move forward? Or is it possible that maybe they just want to do something like an advisory board that is different, like a chief's advisory panel or chief's advisory board that doesn't follow these kinds of um, models? Yes. So I think I would tell any uh, of those community members, probably something that my graduate school professors always emphasize, uh, that the research problem should dictate the methods. And you really, this is a very hyper local issue. Um, law enforcement, although there's, you know, standards at the national level and what we want to see in constitutional standards, uh, how we get police at the local level, really, uh, it's up to the, that particular community and their values. So I would like for the community to assess what is our issue here that we have 
in regards to our relation with the police and the community and what are we trying to solve? And I think that would then dictate, okay, maybe a review model is appropriate, maybe investigative, maybe um, independent audit, uh, auditor, monitor. Uh, in, in the jurisdictions where the population is relatively small, it might not make sense to do a full-fledged investigative model. As you said, there are a lot of uh, cost implications to this. It, it's not cheap to hire an uh, independent investigator. Then you also have to have legal counsel to make sure that uh, the officer's rights are being respected and also uh, any privacy and confidentiality. So there's a lot of elements to this. Uh, I would say that uh, very often I've heard like review models get discounted. We're just a review board. And I think there's power in, in review. And I think when you do it um, correctly, you do it passionately, uh, you do it values in a code of conduct, you can bring about meaningful change. Um, if you're, especially if you have a review model that puts uh, reports forward and uh, public facing and also recommendations, I think that's where you can have uh, a lot of ability to uh, change the system. In in Fairfax County, where I served as inaugural panelist, um, they had the review panel and also the independent auditor. But the review panel, uh, we didn't touch a case, I think, for about after a year because we were just getting a lot of our stuff, uh, our procedures and everything underway, doing the community outreach. Uh, but I think it, it was very helpful for me and also being able to deliberate uh, with my fellow community members and colleagues about like what what are our values here? How do we approach this particular incident? And we have we often you know we didn't always have unanimous votes. Uh, I probably wrote more um, um, dissenting opinions um, uh, that 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 I cared to have written, and it wasn't necessarily because I was trying to be oppositional for the sake of being oppositional. But I, I thought it was also important for. Uh, community members uh, that look like me and that I, I want to make sure are represented, that they understand why I voted against the, the majority. So I would say in, in this regard, I felt that um, the the panel said that the police did a thorough job, but I feel like they could have asked these additional questions and that's why I voted. And I think that's important, even if it doesn't immediately change the policy, I think it puts a department the investigators on notice that maybe there were other steps we can take. Um, for the investigative model, I think it's a it's a great model. Um, if you have a, a just generalized distrust in, uh, in the police department and you do need that independent arm that can potentially be the mediator. And again, uh, this is also though where I think some communities can uh, get in trouble if the expectations aren't being managed. Just because you have an independent investigator doesn't mean that more cases are going to be sustained. And there there are organizations out there that are looking at sustained rates as a sort of metric to determine how effective an oversight agency is. And I, I would caution against that because we're still going by the same legal standards. Or mostly uh, a lot of organizations are using or jurisdictions using a preponderance of the evidence. I mean, and if the evidence just isn't there, then you have to be able to uh, report that accordingly. We can't just say, uh, you know, we, we believe the community member more and, you know, that's why you, know, you have to weigh the evidence. So I think um, it, it's not a guarantee that your sustained rates are going to go up. And that should never, in my opinion, be 
be a, a goal or a mission of a of a oversight agency. And then the monitor auditor, I I think that they're the pros um, for that model. It's again being very systematic about it, uh, especially if you have limited uh, resources, just being able to draw samples or and being able to review and do long-term um, policy recommendations might be uh, an appropriate appro- approach depending on the size of your jurisdiction. And again, the local issues that you may be wish to address in that jurisdiction with law enforcement. So I might be a little bit controversial here um, in saying this is one of the challenges that I had in Charlottesville was when I articulated just what you said, what problem are you attempting to solve with your civilian oversight board? And most often I heard is their response, the police response to the Unite the Right rally. So they wanted some sort of accountability for what they perceived as failures. And they may have been failures to the community, although may not have been failures by um, legal standards, as, as you just said, or even preponderance of the evidence kind of standards. And I had a lot of pushback from that. And I said, well, if you have oversight in whatever form you have it, how will that solve the problem or fix what happened in 2017 versus if you believe that you're not having um, full investigations, there aren't full transparency. If you tell me that you believe internal affairs is you know, blocking investigations or slow rolling investigations or not doing investigations at all, and so you want some accountability to that, that makes sense in my head, right? And then you should be able to prove like we've had these many complaints and nothing gets resolved. That I can understand, that I respect, those kinds of things. So I really am struck when you said, you know, that the method of research you're using should be trying to get you your desired outcomes. Where is the where do you find the disappointment lying? in between when these expectations of now we've got this oversight and of course there's sustainability. They want to know if more cases are sustained, but as a person who's been in several of these inaugural positions, how do you manage the expectations when it may feel like that people don't want oversight? They just want some sort of justice or retribution or something to make them feel whole about some incident that they were involved in? How do you manage that? That's an excellent question. I, The more I think about like what my role is as, as an oversight practitioner, I, I'd really uh, think about the education component of this and making sure community members know and understand the limitations of oversight. It's not a panacea. It's not going to solve all the issues. And it's definitely not going to resolve historical issues overnight. So I think just being truthful, candid, and uh, transparent about that, I think is important. Um, Being uh, somebody of credibility, I think it's important. I've been an outsider in all all these communities except for Fairfax, where I was living there for a while. But uh, so I I think just building a rapport, it's also part of it. There's the... um, understandable suspicion that that community members might have of of the other and like who is this guy what is he trying to do uh here and does he really understand our issues but i think just being able to do that work with the community is important but also just being really transparent about 
the limitations. And if they desire something more of it, then letting them know the current structure, the legal structure, the ordinance that we have doesn't allow for that. So you're not going to be satisfied with any of the decisions, outcomes coming out of this office. If 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 what you really want is a change uh, of the oversight system, and that that's going to be a different discussion. But if I'm operating through that lens and that limited, um, because no oversight jurisdiction has the ability to do all the wonderful things that I think community members want. So I think just having those discussions, uh, having community um, uh, just awareness campaigns about what you're doing and doing it in a timely manner is important. Also just a, as a sociological observation and, and you know, that when, when you were mentioning that you've said the same things and I, and I've seen some of your speeches and, uh, communications, uh, although we didn't overlap in Charlottesville, but in some of the reports you've written, and I said, yeah, she, she was saying the same things I'm saying, but sometimes it's just the messenger. It's by the mere title of being an officer, people are just might not be as receptive. Uh, so that I think I'm very like mindful about my the unique position we are in this field. That and also sometimes people look at me and they hear, oh, he was a cop you know, he thinks like them. So in, in other circles, I'm like, you're a cop, so you understand. So I'm always balancing those, those kind of things. And and I wasn't a career officer by any means. So like I, but I, I was there, you know, enough to understand some of these realities on, on both sides. So. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Well, yeah, and I, I fully understand um, the realities on both sides. And as I would say to, to people, like, there's nobody probably more left-leaning and progressive, and I've been attacked by law enforcement than probably me, about what it is um, that should be required, the, the responsibility that we have to serve the public and serve them well, right? That when, you know, I'm advocating, when people are saying defund the police, I'm, I'm saying, let me translate that for you. They don't want you to be unfunded. They don't want you to exist, or they may, but more importantly, they don't want you to police them the way you're currently policing them, right? So I am really, you know, if people haven't figured this out, very liberal, very progressive, very left-leaning on these issues. And I'm all about um, dismantling supremacy. But sometimes when people are in their own trauma, they will never hear the message, regardless of the messenger. And which was always interesting because the community could not hear me in Charlottesville and the police department despise me for the measures that I was putting in place that would give the community exactly what they wanted, um, oversight and accountability and things like that. Talk to me about the challenges that although there is this push, right, for police accountability and oversight, that it may be seen as just this checklist thing to do because People don't want to be the agency that doesn't have the oversight. And I'm going to give you some quick examples, some you're familiar with. Charlottesville started this process in 2018. 
It is 2024, and I still believe they haven't heard a single case, if I'm correct. You wrote a report as you were exiting about what could have been done differently um, in one of the few cases that they had. So I understand, you know, all of the difficulties that you're currently facing, because this sounds almost sometimes like the new next best thing. We've checked the DEI. It's the flavor of the month. It's the shiny object. Charlottesville, again, has still not held, I believe, a single hearing, even the one hearing they were going to have based on your case that you wrote an, um, a report on, they decided to even settle it within the police department. Here's another um, thing, if I can just bring it to your attention. Um, this was written er- mid last year. Boston's police oversight office has yet to uphold a single civilian complaint. So over two years, Um, not a single complaint was sustained out of all the complaints that came in. I find that highly improbable Um, as a person who was in there, um, in those positions and things of that nature. um, And in Charlottesville, the number of complaints that I was sustaining prior to my arrival there. um, Out of all the complaints in 2022, 126 complaints, two of them are are sustained. We're talking something like 1% of the complaints. We know that it can't be true. But then there's another thing um, that that I had on my um, attention is Phoenix Police Department's um, civilian oversight director just two days ago resigned. And his comments were that he was resigning because he didn't believe that he has the power and the authority to do the work and to do it well. Like this is all just a dog and pony show. It's the latest, greatest thing. Civilian oversight, particularly since the, 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 the homicide and death of George Floyd just escalated. So you all are putting these things in place. The Office of Accountability and Transparency, they're all in place, but nobody really wants the work done. Talk to me about your challenges. Sure. Wow. Uh, you just broke no news to me about uh, Mr. Roger Smith. Uh, I, I actually sat in with him at a at a table at, at a leadership at the NACO conference. Or, for Phoenix? For Phoenix? Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, so I guess thank you for, for keeping me up to date about that. Um, but I, I think you're right there. There are those realities in, in our field that we're often just given this 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 task of like fixing all these problems, which it, it is it's not going to happen. Um, but um, I think there there's a there's a few things that uh, jurisdictions should consider um, before they implement a program. Put in uh, some some safeguards and guardrails to make sure that the community members tasked with this important work are going to be able to to do the work ethically. Uh, and in a matter that's professional, even though there's um, uh, volunteers for the most part, although the state of Maryland um, uh, has um, some very generous stipends. Uh, in the city of Berkeley, we have symbolic stipends to assist with child care and those immediate needs. But um, in other jurisdictions, they're being very generous with stipends. Uh, I think the Arlington and Virginia is a good example of what jurisdictions can do they have a readiness a clause in their ordinance where uh, essentially board members cannot touch a case until they have X amount of hours. And I have been in jurisdictions where 
usually the the executive director, the oversight director is is, is tasked with uh, the training of the board members and you can give them training, but are they really grasping the concepts? And, you know, we, when you give them a case, are they going to be able to do it in a manner that's actually legally consistent? And again, they can have their different points of views about it, their community members, but it still has to be making sure they're meeting the legal thresholds, uh, but also being based in the realities of police work. And they do need uh, that, uh, that appropriate training for that. As you may recall, in the city of Charlottesville, uh, there was a lively discussion about whether the board members should have ride-alongs as part of their training. Uh, and I've in every jurisdiction I've served, that's been part of it. And and I respect the trauma um, uh, perspective that maybe community members who may have had historical issues with the police, they might not be willing to sit in a in a vehicle for X amount of hours. But my concern is, is that person ready to be able to do impartial civilian oversight work if they can't go on a ride along? Uh, so it might be that they can serve the city in a different capacity, just not as a, in a quasi-judicial uh, role as a, somebody that's going to review cases. Um, again, we talked about the, the, uh, the, Sustained rates, uh, but but as you mentioned, there still also should be. Um, uh, it, it can't be the case that no cases get sustained in, and it, it might be that just the lack of training, uh, it, their their review or investigation might be very surface level because the training isn't there to know what questions to ask, to know how to think about this critically, know to apply the general orders, the respective case law, the constitutional law. Uh, so in, and I think it's interesting too when when you see like the makeup of these boards and commissions. Some have I've seen in jurisdictions where they're very uh, top heavy on on having lawyers, which is great, but that also makes really long, <laughs> yeah, really long conversations. Everybody's a Supreme Court justice when they they sit on these panels, so you have these kind of interesting conversations. But um. Uh, I think there, there's definitely something to say there about the, the training uh, and the readiness of the board members uh, to make sure that they're doing their job um, appropriately. Uh, and this is, we had the opportunity um, last year to go on a panel to the International City uh, County Management Association, ICMA. Uh, I went with, um, with the auditor of uh, Arlington and the um, monitor of New Orleans, and we sat on a panel to local governments, and we told them about our experiences of civilian oversight. And we do believe that we have a role in public safety and improving public safety, but we have to make sure that we're doing the appropriate things. It can't just be because it's a it's a sexy thing to do to establish a civilian oversight board. It has to be done methodically. You have to think about. The, the cost benefit analysis you mentioned uh, earlier today that you know the advisory board that could also be an important tool um, in in many jurisdictions also there's the the legal constraints that that uh, board may have because of their uh, public meetings so they there's also you, you're battling with community members that uh, are often working full-time jobs. Not everybody's retired. So trying to schedule everybody for a public meeting may be difficult. Uh, if you need an emergency meeting, again, these, all these layers 
are, are complicated in our system. And I don't think we have enough discussions about the, the logistics and the mechanics, how to do oversight correctly. We talk about reimagining public safety, but uh, I've only heard one, uh, maybe there's others, but I know one uh, vocal um, oversight practitioner, uh, which is Kim Neal from Alexandria. Alexandria. She's Yes, she's in a recently appointed NACO board member. She's always saying, what about reimagining civilian oversight? And I think we need to have more of those discussions. Well, you know, I would probably be more comfortable with reimagining civilian oversight because it is still relatively new. If you think about it, there's a between the numbers are still out between 17,500 policing agencies and 18,000 policing agencies in the United States. Some have histories. Um, all the way back to the oldest police departments, like in Boston in the 16 and 1700s, um, you know, and so um, those kind of conversations, like how do we reimagine this? Because you're still neophytes, right? And out of these 18,000, let's say, policing agencies that have about 750,000 officers, we still are talking only about two to 300 um oversight agencies in the United States, if I'm correct. It may be up to 400. Let's just let's just shove it up to 400. I, I don't know if we've gotten quite there yet, and you might be more informed than I am. How do we then think about oversight and reimagining that differently when they're still, they're still so new that maybe it's not reimagining is that we're still in the building stage? Well, I think having national standards, we talk about it for the police, what does national standards for civilian oversight look like? And uh, NACO, again, is a great resource for the community, but they're a nonprofit. There's nothing, there's no legal requirement. A lot of jurisdictions say you may have, uh, you'll have training by NACO or comparable organizations, but uh, I think codifying uh, what's training looks like for our our uh, field, I think it's an important part of reimagining. Uh, we have police academies, but we rarely do you have a civilian oversight academy. Uh, Chicago has um, a community uh, academy where they go over their system of oversight and they, on the surface level, tell you what they do. But it'll be great to, to get our practitioners to pull in money and develop our own sort of academy where these are what an investigator should be doing. Obviously, every jurisdiction is going to have their own nuances, but there's basic concepts that we all need to understand. Uh, And and having also the not only the professional paid staff, but the volunteer board members also go through some standardized training. Um, Being, I think, um, very, uh, I think, the elected officials should also have a required training before they can implement the oversight body. Because I think very often they, they start up their body and they kind of just let them do what what they want. And, you know, and that in a good way or bad way for what it's worth. But uh, sometimes they're, because they want to respect their autonomy and independence, they feel like if, if an, an elected official, I get, I weigh in on something, then I'm going to potentially have community members or constituents saying I'm infringing on the civilian oversight system. But I think there should be a constant interplay between the elected officials and the oversight body and not just wait for issues to boil over. Uh, and then they have to they're forced to to make a statement or, or take an approach. So those are the immediate things I think reimagining uh, could include. Well, you know, one of the things that um, I thought was hugely important um, 
when I was in Charlottesville, um, and sorry to bore our audience with with this, but when I was promoting um, within or and even hiring panels, I brought in public defenders to sit on the team for hiring. Um, I brought in the the local prosecutor's office, community members, um, defense attorneys, but also civilian oversight members that were part of the boards to do my hiring and my promotional processes. Um, what are the advantages of bringing them in early on? Um, I know what some of the advantages I thought were team building, right? If they could see the quality of the individual we were hiring and if they were in agreement with it, they could then go back to theirs. Do What are the advantages and what about expanding? I know we, we talk about police oversight in just the often the investigative model when there's been a complaint, but what does oversight authentically look like when they might actually be involved in the training of officers as well, right? The hiring and promotion of officers. How, how do you think that could benefit the, the policing aspect as well as community building um, and transparency and legitimacy in policing? I definitely commend you for, for doing that work and taking that approach. I, I think that I, I, that's a very important way to bridge that gap. Once you get the community members invested in who's coming into the community, you can resolve some of these issues. And again, they're force multipliers. We need to get away from the, the community and these archaic um, versions of, and, and, and I'm not saying that they don't exist in a vo- or they exist in a void, but we, we don't have to be adversarial all the time. Uh, between the community and police, and we shouldn't be, right? We should have a, a harmony. But doing the little things like that, it, little things are really important, but inviting them to be at the table in these important decisions, I think it really shows that the department is committed to uh, having the input of the community in these um, decision-making. Uh, I've had the opportunity to sit on some panels here at Berkeley uh, with, with the, um, the command staff, and I appreciate, uh, I feel like, um, you know, my my voice in these uh, in the community's voice is, is being taken uh, into consideration and also being able to understand uh, at the end of the day, they're a final decision maker. So uh, even it, just because you're at the table doesn't mean you, things are going to go necessarily the way you see it. And also just being, I think, uh, upfront about that and but understanding as an individual, like, Yes, I'm at the table, and yes, I'm giving you input, but at the end of the day, I respect that you're going to make the decision you think is best for your organization and for the community. So I think that's important when you sit on those panels. Uh, I think it does show the the ability of the community to work together, and also, again, those community members can say, I sat on that panel, and you know, and obviously there's confidentiality stuff that you can't discuss, but saying that we, we asked the questions that needed to be asked, uh, we vetted the candidates and given the community assurance that there is uh, intentionality behind these decisions, that they're considering the community's values and uh, having that message being relayed back by community members, I think is very important. There was a, another point, though, the, the, the second part of the uh, the question, or are you able to repeat that part? Because I wanted to address it. About how, you know, what basically as you, you were actually answering them at the same time, the benefits of doing these things um, along the way, initially hiring, but also in the training, you know, I think it could benefit the um, 
the police departments to literally be in uh, training with you all. Um, I remember the first time I reached out to NACO and Brian Core um, at the time and offered, you know, my budget to pay for the civilian review personnel to be trained, um, which is highly unusual <laughs> to say, please come in and train because I didn't want an adversarial relationship. I wanted as I've always believed in oversight, you have to be well-informed, well-trained in order to be fair and impartial and to make um, the best decision based on all the information that you have in front of you. So you did answer that. The, okay. I'm going to ask you two more things. I know you've got your day um, ahead of you. I've just taken up more of your time than you would like. Um, what has been some of the challenges that you have faced as you have thought about, when I mean, you stood up two separate um, oversight boards as inaugural directors of each of these, what have been some of the challenges um, that you faced and how did they surprise you that, that you were facing these kind of challenges? Um, I think that I shouldn't have been surprised uh, in term, because of my training in, in sociology, uh, the bureaucracy, the, the way that that slows you down, this iron cage of bureaucracy, as Weber stated, it, it, it's it's one thing like to read about it, and but just living it and just the way that a lot of these barriers uh, get in the way of, of doing the meaningful work that the community wants to see and then having to explain that back to the community. When, you know, so it might be something as simple as like, updating a website or changing a website, why it can't be done, which is an important piece of messaging in community education. But then, you know, it's one of also your deliverables and you're having to, you're having to explain and, and just working through all, all the kinds of bureaucracies of local government, I think it's, it's one thing that uh, could be a little bit discouraging in, in doing this work because it's not like we we're a lot of these departments, yes, they're they're independent in name, but they're still working within the infrastructure of the city and things are, are slow and they take time. And so I think that that is one of the immediate things that I um, that I observed in terms of the challenges in this field. I, I remember being a panelist in um, Fairfax County and then I, the immediate thing I said, I don't want to be using my Gmail for these uh, emails that I have police officers, you know, put the records and stuff and I get foiled and now my whole, you know, thing is potentially subject to review. So uh, it took about two years for us to get uh, county issued emails. And, you know, those are the kind of the things that I think uh, really impact the work because, you know, thank God we didn't have an incident where, there was an undisclosed issue or, or breach in one of our emails, but it could have happened. And then how do we explain that to the office? It could potentially shut down the system. So like just being able to uh, keep up with the pace of the community's um, expectations is, is uh, it's always challenging, I think, because you're also battling with these internal constraints. Uh, I think also when uh, they're, comparisons across jurisdictions it's also could be a challenging because like look look what they're doing over there and i'm like yeah they're doing that because they have xx and x in place we don't have that so we need to get we need to change this before we could even look at that so i think that you know the apples to oranges comparisons i think make it challenging for us 
as much as we try to have uh, basic standards across the field, there, there's still a lot of different nuances. Even like talking about Charlottesville, we um, when we talked about them not having a, a, a hearing, you know, there were a lot of reasons for that. We don't have to relive it because we only got a few minutes. But uh, one of the things that, that they landed on was to to have a hearing examiner to kind of a professionalized person that would kind of manage the hearing, which isn't a feature in all review models, but it was something that just be, it made sense in the context of Charlesville, at least at that time. Um, and but then we we started looking at other models like DC has a version of it, but DC's model is also entirely different than Charlottesville. So again, having these these kind of comparisons could be challenging because it's it's very local and it's very unique to the circumstances of the community. And then one third challenge, if I could get three in there, I think um, just when when you feel like you know, the community, you feel the community's pressure in this work and they want you to do something. They want you to say something, but it's not always a time to speak. And is you know, and you have to learn when you say something, how you're going to say it. Uh, and it might not always be what the community members want you to say. You know, we're not a nonprofit. We're not a political entity in that sense. We're, we're a city government entity. So we still also have to be mindful of, of what we're doing, how we're doing it, and what we're saying. So I appreciate it, and you're exactly right. Um, there are some some pitfalls, particularly about the obstacles. For instance, if you do have hearings, you know they might need to be public. They're, you're a public body; you can't have these things unless they're public. And you may have a witness that you have no subpoena power, or they they they're not coming forward, or they may be a juvenile, and or they may be currently under a criminal investigation. So there's so many other things that that complicate this. Um, what has surprised you in a very pleasant way about doing this work? Uh, I really appreciate the community of practitioners. I, I don't think that there's like I, that I've reached out to somebody in this field, even cold calls that I've done where somebody hasn't like said, Here, here's how I do it or taking the time. So like I've been mentored a lot in this field. You mentioned something like Brian. Uh, I had the opportunity to go to my first NACO conference under a presidential scholarship that uh, Brian was the president then. And he has, I think, been a very uh, good friend and mentor to me in this field. Uh, so just the support I think you get from the practitioners is very uh, surprising and in, in, in a pleasant way to me. Well, I'm excited every time we have the opportunity um, to do this work. You know, you've been trailblazing um, in this field. You've been setting the standard for how it's supposed to be done and how it's supposed to be done well. And, you know, to our listening audience, and particularly to our police listening audience, you know, this is where we're headed, whether we want to believe it or not. Why not create the best system of accountability for the police and the community? So I'm still going to claim it again, soon to be Dr. Hansel Aguilar. He is currently the director of the civilian oversight in the city of Berkeley, California, not the university, formerly out of Charlottesville. My dear, dear, dear friend, you inspire me. Thank you for taking the time out to spend some time with me. I do appreciate you. Thank you, Chief. Listen, folks, you know, there is a reason for authentic 
well-informed, well-structured police oversight. There is a need for it. We have way too many incidents of officer misconduct um, or behaviors that are not being addressed. And if we want to build authentic trust and legitimacy between the community and the police, make sure that you have the vehicle to do that. Examine the ways in which you want to hold the police accountable. And if police civilian oversight is that way, I say go for it. Go into it. But to the cities that are going to implement this, this cannot be some token response. If you're not going to be authentic about it, if you're not going to allow the oversight departments to do the work that you're asking them to do, or if you're just going to do performative investigations and therefore officers are allowed to continue down the pathway of misconduct, of abusing the public that they have sworn to protect and serve, then you do nothing but a disservice to the communities who deserve good and healthy policing in their communities. Audience, I'm telling you, police oversight is not new. It is not something that's to be taken lightly. It should be embraced by the police and the community. And if we do it well, if we do it well, we can provide service beyond the call. To our audience, please thank you for listening. Tell someone about the show. Don't forget to download, subscribe, follow, rate, and comment on Twitter, Instagram, Substack, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts like Apple, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or the mean old Lion Media app. This is the end of my shift. I am 1042. Catch you next week. The Black Arm of the Law podcast is hosted by Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Executive producers Ken Johnson, Steve Tompkins, and Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, the Mean Old Line Media app, or where you get your podcast. Follow Black Arm of the Law at BLK Arm of the Law on IG and X. Follow the Mean O' Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O' Line Media. Get the Mean O' Line Media app in the App Store and Google Play for more great podcasts. The Black Arm of the Law Podcast is a Mean O' Line Media production. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.